Zealand. Well, I'm sure if it goes well at the World Championships, everything else gets put into perspective. Ireland. Attention. This is Emma Twig. Really such a consistent performance. She's just moved it up a level this year, winning gold in Lucerne. And she'll really want to make sure she goes with it. I think Emma Twig will just hang in there. I think that's what we've seen from these New Zealand crews. But they allow other people to raise the rate, make their big moves, as Kim Crow's doing here. And I suspect Emma Twig is just going to track with her through this second 500 and then look to put the pressure on as they come through the 1,000. I think Emma Twig looks fantastic there. She's got the relaxation on her face. And for me, it feels like she's just covering the move from Kim Crow. Well, look at that little gain she just made there. Just pulled herself level with Kimmy. I'm sure that's what she's trying to do. And I just wonder what's going through Emma Twig's mind now as she looks to her left and sees that little bit of clear water. And she knows she's 500 metres from glory. 500 metres to just keep this boat moving along. Match anything she sees coming from Kim Crow. And I'm not sure quite what's going to come because we know Kim's already moved, made a move in the second 500. And Emma Twig could be world champion for the first time in her career. Coming back after the game, she's been so consistent. She's won every outing this year. And once again, it looks like she's going to come down to the line and beat Kimmy Crow in this final at the World Championships. I mean, the feeling inside for her, I'm sure she is just absolutely in excruciating pain. But I'm sure the delight that she's feeling now, getting just clear water over Kimmy as she comes down to the grandstand in the last 100 metres. Well, it's just 10 strokes to go now for Emma Twig. I know we've still got a look on her face. It's pain, but she's going to be smiling inside as she comes down here. Kim Crow's lifting the straight rate. She's trying to sprint. She's trying to make it hard for Emma. But Emma takes another look to her left. She's going to hold a tiny bit of clear water as they cross the line. And Emma Twig, you are world champion. Welcome to The Row Show. We're your hosts, Lawrence Britton and Jake Green. And in this podcast, we're going to go into everything related to sport and performance. And we're also going to talk a little bit about rowing. In South Africa. It brings people together, it breaks Olympics. down barriers. Yeah, right. My passion winning to be the best. Being the best is something we strive for. Sacrifice, role in Passion. Great passion. Fiction. Gold. Ultimate gold. Glory. Relentless training. Pain. Pain. <laughs> Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another epic episode of The Row Show and yeah thanks uh, so much for tuning in. Uh, once again it's myself uh, Lawrence Britton and Mr. Green. Yeah how's it going guys it's, it's Jake here and yeah we're really excited to bring you guys another episode and we sat down recently and we spoke with Emma Twig from New Zealand and I know there are a lot of people out there that, out there that are, are dying to share an episode with Emma. Uh, we had a really awesome chat and, uh, yeah, such a, such a legend in the sport. You know, we got into, we got into her career and we had, had an awesome time. Yeah, it was a really, really cool episode. Uh, someone that I've been dying to, to have on the show basically from the beginning. Um, and yeah, just really insightful stuff, especially on uh, training in the single, uh, you know, she's rode in, she's only rode in the eight and the single in her entire career. So she started off in the eight and then quickly moved to the single. And as always, like it takes a, a special kind of uh, person and a special kind of athlete to, to enjoy that single and, and make a, a rowing career out of that single. So we really got into that and, and 
kind of got into to what makes it tick um yeah really really cool stuff some also some tough conversations on some of the racing that she's had some of the the fairness about some of the racing and yeah really really interesting and i'm sure you guys are going to enjoy it as much as we did Last week, Lawrence and I, we decided to set up a PayPal account to, you know, help the, the Rosho um, on his journey and also t- uh, to, you know, see if any of our fans out there would be interested in supporting us. And we've had uh, such an awesome um, reaction to that and some great support from, from you guys out there. Really, really appreciate it. A huge um, impact on covering our costs for the Rosho. And yeah, if you guys are interested in, in supporting us, you can go to our link and that will take you to a SoundCloud account, which will um, have a PayPal uh, donation link on there. So go over there and support if you want. Um, but yeah, guys, it's, it's a huge help and it's, it's really humbling um, to, to know you guys enjoy that that much. Yeah, really, really awesome to to get some support and uh, it really will make a difference and uh, make sure that... Uh, we can keep, keep uh, giving you guys such awesome content. And Jake made that sound really complicated, but all you need to do, go to SoundCloud, follow the link. The other thing is just to, to keep sharing the show, guys. Uh, our base is always growing and, uh, and our episodes are always getting uh, more hits, and, and it's, which is awesome to see. So just keep telling your friends about us. Uh, keep sharing it. If you tell uh, one person a week about the Roche show and, and hopefully get them hooked, then it really will help us out. So yeah, go and do that. And otherwise, enjoy the show with Emma Twig. Welcome, ladies and gents. It's another episode of the Roche show. And we are very excited to announce that we are sitting down with Emma Twig, having a good conversation around rowing. Uh, welcome to the show, Emma. Hey guys, pleasure to be here, virtually. <laughs> yeah, awesome, virtually. It's it's a bit difficult to arrange a sit down uh, between South Africa and New Zealand, but yeah, this is yeah, this is um, it's going to be an awesome chat. Yeah, yeah, I think this is going to be a real test of internet connections in South Africa and New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we've had our fair share of, of internet problems in our in our recordings, but uh, usually we get something that we can uh, that we can work with and uh, and produce something cool. Nice. Yeah, so straight off the bat, Emma, obviously these are testing times at the moment with Corona. Um, New Zealand's in, in a lockdown. We just wanted to see how how your training's going and how you're managing it um, at the moment. And, you know, is there a bit of rowing going around? What's the team environment like? I take it you probably by yourself. Um, you know, what what has changed in terms of the modality? Yeah, so we've been in lockdown for two and a half weeks now. And initially, I kind of thought as a single sculler, I maybe had to get on the water and be in isolation. And um, it became pretty clear after the first couple of days that the rules in our, what we call a level four, which is the, the lockdown period, um, means that we can't be on the water uh, stretching our kind of emergency services if they were needed. So um, training's been a lot of erging, biking and weights. And um, we were lucky that our um, national centre, both um, – High performance sport and rowing New Zealand just basically gave out all of their equipment to all of the athletes and said, "Put it in your put it in your cars, take it home, and create your home gyms." So we've done that, and that's been that's been fun in this pretty challenging period. Um, but it's yeah, it's really I guess made us rethink how we are training. Uh, I guess the postponement of the games has um, changed the goalposts a little bit, so it's it's not as stressful um, if we're not quite able to get done what we normally would um but yeah so far so good taking along 
So it sounds similar to South Africa. Like we also got, we came back from training camp straight into, uh, into lockdown and it was uh, pretty brutal, but we all took our ergs and some gym equipment. I got the Watt bike and uh, we all just kind of training at home. So, and it's just been a, more about the adjustment uh, to this kind of training and also this really extended season. Uh, but tell us a little bit about the training, like just, just before this all uh, all happened, like how was your, your Olympic prep going a month ago? Yeah, I mean, everything was, was well on track. We um, we obviously had our summer in New Zealand, which is it's always nice while the, the rest of the world is in, in the wintertime. So we enjoyed a, a great um, domestic season. Um, and, and as a team, our selections actually happened a little bit earlier this year uh, uh, in preparation for the kind of the earlier Olympic season. So all of our crews pretty much had been confirmed. Uh, and then a couple of weeks later, um, we were in lockdown and, I guess now those those selections have kind of gone back to the drawing board and will have to happen again next year. But in general, I think the team was tracking really well. Um, we've got a, a great vibe amongst the team, uh, especially the women's side of the team at the moment, um, with you know four world championship uh, winning women's crews. Um, so yeah, things were going really well. And I think uh, while there was disappointment in the the games being postponed a year, I think more of it came from um, not necessarily having a, a European campaign and, and heading over and having a, a you know a season to, to race for. Now we're looking at close to a year, if not longer, of being in New Zealand and, and racing amongst ourselves again. Yeah, and I mean you've touched on it there. I mean the uh, women's rowing in New Zealand has had an incredible season last year with uh, picking up a couple of titles and um, you obviously picking up the silver medal is also incredible. I mean. Just the, the, like you said, the vibe in the team must be good. But I mean, I, I imagine the competition on the water. I know you're in the single skull, but I've no doubt in my mind that um, there are a couple, you know, there are a couple other the, uh, scholars out there that can make training a little little bit harder. And have there been any any move into a bigger boat just for, you know, trying to increase the competition maybe a little bit more on the double or something? Yeah, for sure. So we, um, I try and get into a, a bigger crew boat as much as possible. And, and like you say, we've got huge depth in our team. And so we can pretty much put out four, five, six women's double skulls that can sit alongside each other and train um, and be very competitive. So um, I've done a, quite a bit of that over the summer, um, raced in a double at nationals, at our national champs, which was really cool. Um, and then off, often get to sit in, in the middle of a quad as well, which is something very different again. So yeah, there's, there's certainly a lot of competition within our team. Um, our women's double of, of Brooke and Liv, they'll often do sessions alongside me in the single and are pushing me the whole way. So it certainly makes for some competitive training and it also makes it that much more enjoyable for me because it's not just, um, you're not just kind of in the grind of going out there by yourself and trying to get through a session. There's always people pushing you and um, the squad in general, we kind of, um, we have two, two days a week where we're doing squad sessions and we're ranking ourselves off a prognostic sheet and yeah it's pretty pretty competitive stuff which is I guess why you've seen quite a quite a bit of success amongst um, some of our women's crews in the last year or two. Of course and I mean I'm interested Emma with moving from the skull into boats like the double and the quad you know are there are there certain like technical aspects that you find uh, come in bigger boats that make a huge difference to the skull that you you won't normally find in, in, in the skull by yourself? 
Yeah, and that's kind of been the aim of it. Uh, from my coach has been big on. He used to coach a, a men's and women's quad, um, and kind of getting me into a bigger boat to to, to change the movement a little bit in the single, um, make my my movements a little bit quicker and uh, more dynamic. Uh, because I think in the single there is that that tendency to to almost slog it out a little bit, especially if you're doing a lot of long U two work. Uh, so that from that perspective, it's been it's been really cool, like learning about power application and things like that in the bigger boats um yeah and just again it just it mixes things up it, it makes it interesting and because we have such a competitive bunch of girls you know that every session that you're going out in a double you're going to be pushing right to your max because everyone is so competitive and wanting a seat in either the double or the quad um or trying to take me off the perch in the single <laughs> yeah i mean it sounds uh especially like uh when we chatted to to grace and Kerry, um it just the competition in the team is uh is really brutal and like they're trying to make an environment that is as close as, as possible and yeah it just sounds uh really really exciting um to do that i mean it's very similar in our team uh the the like we don't have as, as many numbers but the the goal is always to make it uh, so competitive and I think that's definitely when you emulate the like the world uh, racing that you get when you when you travel overseas and also like define that like uh, racing spirit of uh, being able to put your your best work out there when it counts yeah I think that having pressure daily obviously prepares you for pressure when it comes to race day so um, yeah especially amongst our and our women's suite program as well now and that's something that I've seen having been part of our program for 15 odd years or so it's just the pro- progression and depth of the girls in that that squad. That there used to be one really standout pair, and now you've got four of them that all push each other and, and can be mixed up in any way pos- possible and still um, be pushing and, and be producing some really world-class times. Um, and one thing that we've always had uh, throughout that whole time is, is a crew that's kind of a benchmark. Um, when I first started, it was the Eviswindale Twins, and then it was... Mahe and the men's pair um, and then more recently it's been our women's pair and, you, and lightweight women's double I guess you can you know that when you're you're doing a squad piece and you're being measured against them that if you're within you know a percent or even closer that you're you're going really well and you've got a, a great shot at winning a medal on the world stage yeah for sure and then maybe that can take us like uh, right on to uh, talking about the percentages and obviously you ranked off uh, of your world record um, and the skull world record is seemingly really, really fast. And I mean, it's a record that's it's one of the older records on the books. Uh, 707 set uh, way back in, in 2002. Uh, that must make it pretty difficult uh, to to get high on that uh, prognostic sheet. Yeah, the prognostic sheet in the women's singles, it's like the bane of my life. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm constantly looking at it, scratching my head and thinking, I, I felt like it was a really good piece, but I'm still somewhere down the middle of the, the table. So... Um, but that's what that's I guess it is what it is and it's the world record and if I want to be an Olympic champion then 707 is probably something close to what I'm going to have to do so um, yeah I guess that I've learned to kind of um, to look at our prog sheet and and know you know roughly what my best performances are and um, again if I can be within you know a percent of our women's pair then I know that I'm going really well so I guess it's all relative and that's the, the thing with the prognostic yeah. as you can kind of look at it and get a either a false sense of how good you're going or um or the opposite but um yeah that, that 707 is certainly the benchmark and everything i'm doing now is to try and try and produce a 707 race yeah because it's uh it's not 
it's that different for us as well. We also have a, a really fast, uh, lightweight girls team that always somehow trying to uh, stay on top of the, on the prog sheet. And then we also chase the, the 608 in the, in the men's yeah. day. And it's, uh, it's not that easy. Uh, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Hamish and Eric set the, the standard quite high there, I must say. Yeah, yeah. We always, we always laugh when people break world records because it just makes their um, time on the prog sheet that much harder. Um, but <laughs> yeah. I guess, you know, world, re- world, world records are set in, in crazy conditions, not crazy conditions, but fast conditions and phenomenal athletes. And that's why they're, real, they're world records. Um, and so long as you're measuring yourself off, off that and not necessarily always comparing yourself to, to everyone else, then I think the prog sheet's always a bit of a motivator. Yeah, so I think maybe uh, we can uh, jump back a little bit to to your your start in the sport. I mean, obviously we're going to get to to some of the really cool races that you've had, but I mean the start uh, your start into international rowing was really really crazy. And uh, like when I look at the results, it's uh, it's it's almost <laughs> unbelievable how quickly and uh, how well you did so early. I mean, you went two thousand and four in the in the into the women's eight. Which is also quite funny because you've only raised raised the eight and the skull, like the two opposite extremes. Um, maybe talk us through that, like that first year, that first uh, competition as a as a junior. Yeah, so '04 was actually 2003 and four. Oh, I was in the junior yeah. women's eight. 2003 was the Athens Test event when we raced over a thousand meters because the the race was cut short because of the wind. Um, and both of my junior eight experiences. Um, they, while they were amazing because of what I got out of them in terms of the friendships and the culture and my first taste of international racing, um, they didn't really produce the re- results at the end of it. I think we got last in both of those junior uh, eight events. Um, but I, at that point, that kind of had ignited my um, my passion for, for the sport. And at a, at a school level, I was, I was racing the single already. Um, and obviously in my uh, last year of school, I kind of, um, I guess, got the bug for single sculling and decided that um, I was still able to, to race at Junior World Champs um, as a first-year university student. So that was the goal. And that same year, I was actually picked as the under-23 single sculler as well. So I raced the under-23 World Champs and the Junior World Champs in that year um, and won the Junior Worlds and was fourth at the under-23s. Um, and then the following year was picked straight away into the elite women's eight. So I kind of, I almost skipped the under 23 side of things. Um, And again, the eight, well, again, it was was amazing experience, but we didn't necessarily get the result that we wanted. And at that time, Rowan New Zealand were trying to um, get the eight qualified for for Beijing. But at the same time, there was an open single skull spot. And the last person to sit in that seat was Sonia Waddell um, at the 2004 Olympics. Uh, so I kind of had had an eye on that, um, but Rowan New Zealand weren't so keen keen on that. As a 19-year-old, I guess they thought that it was too early for for this, and that and they they wanted to kind of get the eight across the line. Um, but I was pretty adamant that I could qualify the single, um, and that was probably some naivety at that age, because right now I, I probably look back and think, well, wow, that was a pretty bold call. Um, and so that that year of 2007 um, qualification year, Rowan New Zealand kind of gave me an ultimatum. They said if you, if you go into the under 23 single, um, you're going to have to win that to then be able to actually even go to the, the senior worlds to, to try and qualify it. 
Um, so I said, okay, that's fine. Um, won the under 23s by nine seconds or something like that. And then went in and made the final and qualified the boat at um, the Munich world champs. So it was a little bit of a, a rapid rise, I guess, into the single. Um, and then I've been there ever since. Uh, <laughs> I guess there's been numerous opportunities to potentially hop into a, a different sculling boat. Um, but having been bitten by the, the sculling bug, it's been um, something that I've had success with. And I've just, you know, since 2008, I think, have been in the top four in the world, but haven't quite reached a podium at the Olympics. So it, it's kind of kept me wanting to come back and and be in the single and, and be a part of the, the top few. Yeah, I think there's there's definitely something like about uh, people that enjoy the single. It's it's I think the the difference between the single and the rest of rowing is probably bigger than you know the difference between a pair and a four or you know even a pair and a double is probably easier to to change between. Uh, I think if you really have that that sculling bug, it's it's like just part of you and it's something that you you really want to do all the time and. Uh, we went through a lot of results there, but I want to go back to 2005 when you raced under 23s and uh, juniors in the same year. And maybe like, what was that like? I mean, you just missed the podium at the under 23s, so you gold at juniors and then fourth at under 23s. And what was it like making the A final at under 23s, knowing that you probably by far the youngest person in the in the race and uh, and you're still a junior racing at the under 23 level? Um, yeah, again at the time, I think I was a little bit naive uh, of the whole situation. I actually was pretty disappointed with getting a fourth place at, at under 23s. Um, it was on the notorious Boz Barn in a slightly windy conditions. I think I was over on the in, one of the inside lanes. Uh, and, and yeah, I remember being quite disappointed by that. But also knowing that two weeks later, um, I was off to the Junior World Champs and had a really great shot of, of winning that. So yeah, it, it was it was probably something I didn't really think about too much. And maybe looking back in those those kind of pre uh, Beijing years, that was that naivety that I I just had this belief that I was was going to do well and that I could do well, and didn't really think about who I was racing. Um, and maybe later in my career, now I have more of a I wouldn't say I didn't have respect for those those legends of, um, you know, the likes of Carsten and um, Nakova back in 2008, but maybe didn't, because I was so young, didn't really completely understand it. Yeah, and, and but I mean, I, I still think most people, you know, I mean, as an under-23, there's not a, there's not a lot, or you still, maybe now you realize how much there is to know, but I think at the time you, you're so caught up in this crazy sport and and the improvements are coming so quickly and everything is just this crazy ride i'm sure it was quite a rush and i mean you must have really felt confident going from under 23s with your fourth to back to juniors uh and lining up against people now that you you must have felt okay well, i can uh, really do some damage here yeah yeah i definitely was confident uh, in that brandenburg race and again it was quite a windy race um so i think that kind of helped me as well there was certainly a, a, a great deal of confidence that i took out of the under 23s and then going going back to the juniors and actually i often think it would have been interesting to have raced the juniors first and then gone to under 23s and and wonder if there would have been a, a difference in a result but um yeah i think it's a uh, not many people actually get the opportunity to do that um to do both juniors and under 23s um so yeah that was probably the the start of it all in the single what's what's really interesting is um with the with the quick rise you spent a season in the women's eight and then 
Chat to us about heading to your World Championships in 2007 in the Skull. Uh, you've already, you know, you've been to a senior world champs at that stage, but you know, it's a, it's a different, it's a do- different ball game, especially as a younger athlete, I guess, going to world champs at such a young age in the in the single skull. And talk to us about, you know, qualifying for your first Olympics. Um, you know, it's a, it's it's quite a far cry from uh, the stage of your career now, but it's still back at the time. It must have been an incredible feeling qualifying at such a young age and making a final. Um, in 2007 and must have felt like quite a, a bit of a breakthrough in a way yeah it certainly was and I think to this day that would have been one of the most exciting um, races for me and probably the ones that I hold as as you know one of my proudest achievements and I remember it very clearly and and that whole year for me it was a culmination of a lot of things because to begin with I had to fight to be in the single at all um, I was very much earmarked for the women's eight uh, and that was a bold step to turn around to the eight other women that I'd been in a crew with and say, look, I'm going out on my own and I think I can qualify the single. And there was a lot of resistance there and um, people didn't really believe that I would. Uh, and so then for Rowan New Zealand to say, um, you can do the under 23 single. Uh, and there was a period of time where that was the only option. There was no option of going to the, the senior worlds. And so I had to kind of push and say, if I win the under 23s, can I then go and try and qualify? So I think that race was a year of um, me try, kind of trying to prove a point, which probably um, meant there was even more satisfaction in not only qualifying the boat, but making the A final. Um, and at the time, I remember the race being against Frida Svensson to make the final. And I was actually behind and I came through her in the last 250 metres or something like that um, to win. So it was a pretty special race and I just remember after the race going back to our hotel and just thinking, oh my gosh, you've just qualified for the Olympics. This has been a dream of mine since I was a young girl and playing hockey. Um, and it and you know it was up to me from there to, to retain my spot in the single um, and then to bet my first games as a 20, 20 or 21-year-old. Um, in the single, again, I didn't really think that that was unusual. I just had this belief that I could be there. Um, but that whole couple of years, was, was there was definitely some highs and lows, and, and that race certainly stands out. Yeah, I'm sure. And, I mean, like you said, it's I think it's it's obviously that mindset. It just seems like that mindset, it, it, it almost opens opens up your, your ability in a way because I feel like often there are a lot of conversations around, you know, how your, how your mindset and attitude can sort of close down what you believe you can achieve, and and clearly, you know anything's possible if you, if you if you work hard enough. And um, moving on from world champs, uh, going to your first Olympic games, you you came ninth, um, which was an incredible achievement at the time. But I mean, I can I can I can already tell with your 2000 and 2008 season leading up, it was I mean you picked up a, a bronze medal at the first World Cup. Was it was it quite a like a um, as a younger athlete? Was it quite a, a big uh, the first Olympics, it must have been quite a, a big experience. And talk to us about going to the Olympics at a, a relatively young age and a, a relatively inexperienced rower. Yeah, it was an interesting one. Um, again, I went there with these expectations of, I, I truly believe that I could win a medal. And uh, looking back, I'm thinking, Emma, like, what were you thinking? It should have been about going and experiencing it, uh, experiencing it and enjoying it and taking it all in and, and kind of preparing myself for, potentially the next one or two that I was going to do um but that I guess shows the mentality as well um and I was 
was very young in a team, a, a quite a small team at the time. We had a women's pair and a women's double and a women's single. So we had five women at the games uh, compared to now we have a you know a full roster. Um, and these these girls, the Everswindale twins and and Jules and Juliet Hagen, uh, or now Juliet Drysdale and Nikki Coles were were absolute legends of the sport to me. They they've been on my walls for years. So to be one of those five was um, a bit of a bit of an honour, and it was also fairly daunting. I remember thinking I had no mates <laughs> in that year of the games, and yeah, it was it was an amazing experience just because it was my first and the scale of the Beijing games um, was insane, how they, they kind of put it together and my you know my first memories of walking into the village and the food hall and all those things that you experience at your first games were, were all definitely there. Um, and then the racing, um, actually, believe it or not, I was absolutely disappointed and gutted by my performance, uh, especially the semi-final. I was, I was literally rowed through on the last stroke of the race by Julia Mikowska um, from Poland. She beat me by 0.05 of a second. And to this day, it still scars me um, because that was, you know, that was an A final spot. Um, and of course, you've got to be in the, in the final for any kind of chance of a medal. And I guess the thing I've learned in the, in the years um, since is that anything can kind of happen at an Olympics. So, um, again, strange to look back now and to, to look at how disappointed I was with that, given you know, where I'd come from in, in such a short time. Um, but it's kind of been a little bit of a theme of Olympics for me is the, they've been kind of, they've gone side by side with a lot of disappointment in a way. Um, so yeah, that, that was that was Beijing. Um, we had a great time after the, the racing um, and it was really my first experience of, of that side of the games as well and, and I guess it made me hungry for more and um, it was an experience that has been valuable since. So sure, there, there's so much cool stuff in there and I think we really have to break it down a little bit more. So uh, for me, like the, the Everson Dells, I mean, I feel like I've even learned so much about rowing from them. So, I mean, just you training with them and racing with them, you must have soaked up so much uh, uh, epic knowledge and just, uh, yeah, what are the things that uh, stand out from uh, just training with uh, with such a iconic double? Yeah, are they, obviously, like, as I say, when I was a young kid, I, I literally had posters of them um, on my walls in my bedroom and... So then all of a sudden to be in a, a squad where I was training with them daily was pretty daunting. Um, but at the same time, it, it taught me a lot about um, work ethic. They, those two girls are some of the hardest workers I think I've ever met. And they just are very clinical about their work and the rowing. They would, you know, they'd bike down to rowing almost every single day, which from, from where we live is probably a 12 or 13k ride, um, you know, and very you'd see them in their big gears just just chugging away down to rowing that they'd, they'd go come to come to the shed pick up their boat and at that time again we were in this tiny little shed uh, at Carapero nothing no luxuries at all compared to what we experience now um and they just do their work um and there was nothing flashy about it they they just worked extremely hard their their on water speed um at a U2 level versus a race pace level was very there, there wasn't much difference um, and we would just literally be sent out to try and keep up or um, Dick Tonks, he coached me for that, that first part of my, my career 
would set me off a minute or two minutes ahead of them and, and they would chase me down and it would be my job to keep them away and their job to catch me up. Pretty simple stuff. Um, and that was kind of the existence in those early years. I remember it just being lots and lots of, uh, of miles and very little um, change in intensity. Um, we'd have a couple of squad sessions of, a week, which would be longer distance racing, but nothing, nothing kind of higher than 28, 30 rate. Um, and it was just a real grind, I would describe that period. Um, and I look back now and I think that was certainly the foundations for my endurance base now. But um, I, get, I think we've probably evolved as rowing has evolved um, and as science and physiology and all of those things have come into it more. We've, we've definitely shifted. But when I think of the Everswindale twins, I just think of hard workers um, and actually, actually real characters when you, when you kind of break them down and and peel back the layers um they're awesome and i have and always will have a huge amount of respect for both of them and i think what they did in the double um was so impressive and and they in my opinion are kind of res- responsible for the reason for the funding that we have now and the the luxuries that we have now and our and what they have their their legacy has created this what is yeah. essentially the new zealand rowing team now yeah it's really cool to to see that because i mean even from from south africa we you know, we've had a few of those good results over the years and they, they carry the team and the funding and, the, you know, the energy and that culture has grown so much from those uh, small results. And we can just see like our progression over these few years. Uh, I can just imagine how the progression has been in, uh, in New Zealand. And yeah, I mean, what, a, what a journey to what a team to be have been a part of over, over these last uh, couple of years. Um, but the, the other point that I wanted to go on is how you, you said you felt alone and, and I think rowing in the single, like for me is, uh, I, I really enjoy the crew dynamic and that's the part of the, the single that scares me is that I'm like all alone all the time. And how does that, how do you deal with that and, and how does that affect your self-talk and, uh, and your, I don't know, your, your mental prep going into a big race? Uh, yeah, I think actually this, this lockdown period has um, made me think about that a bit because I think there's a difference between training alone like I am now versus training alone in the single but as part of a bigger team. And yeah. I've always had my teammates around me in training. Uh, with Initially, it was um, the Everswindale Twins and Mahe that I trained alongside and, and a women's quad for that, that London period. Um, and now it's... I had Robbie last year as my training partner um, and over summer it's all of the, the women in, is in our sculling squad. So I'm never really alone when I'm down training at Rowan New Zealand um, here in a situation like we are now. It, it makes me realise how hard it would be if you were the you know a one-man band in a, a really small country set up or you didn't have a training partner that was a similar speed um, because I think it requires a huge amount of mental um self-talk um and motivation internal motivation to to get going um so yeah in in a way although i've been in the single i have been part of a team and and i've never really thought of that as a a barrier there's definitely times when you're doing long pieces and you're by yourself and you just love love a, a doubles partner to kind of take a few big strokes for you while you can have a little breather and that's why i do um really enjoy getting into to crew boats every now and then so it does vary it but it's never really been something throughout my career that I've I've battled with because I've always been part of this epic team. 
Yeah, and I suppose the also the reward element of it of of being putting a, putting together a really good session or a really good piece or a race, and then coming off and being like, well, that was all me, is also uh, fairly rewarding, and I think maybe can balance uh, balance that out. Yeah, for sure. And the one one thing that I love about the single is that everything you do can change how fast the boat goes. So if it's not going well, it's your fault, and you've got to change something. So there's no there's no blame game ever being play, played in the single. And then talking about uh, Dick Tonks, uh, and when we chatted to Eric, he spoke about some crazy sessions they've, that you guys have done under him. And uh, the Lightweight Girls Double also spoke about some really insane sessions and mileage that uh, that they've done. So I mean, you must have some uh, some war stories of uh, of that session that just is in your mind embedded there forever. Yeah, I think for me that a lot of those came when I was part of the Women's Eight in 2006. Dick coached that crew as well. And um, yeah, there was a few sessions where the, the thing with Dick, and I don't know that necessarily the, the training has got easier. We still do similar miles and similar sessions, but we know what we're about to do. And so I think you have this time to mentally prepare, whereas with Dick, we never knew. We would go out and we would be doing 500s and you wouldn't know whether you were doing two or you were doing 30. Um, and so when you're in the middle of those sessions and I remember one in the eight in Poznan, we were, we'd been, we'd had a pretty average performance at a world cup. So Dick's response to that was just, right, I'm just going to bury these girls, I think. And so we just did 500 after 500 after 500. Um, I think we got up to 30, maybe more. And yeah, we had a, we actually, one of the girls was injured. So our physiologist at the time, Brett Smith hopped in. And he hadn't done any rowing, and he also didn't know what what the session was going to involve. And by the time we'd finished it, his hands were just absolutely ruined. They were bleeding, and he just he kind of was, I guess he knew what he was getting himself into to a certain degree, but just wasn't quite prepared for the onslaught. And and Dick just didn't care. It was just go stop, go stop, and that's all you got from him in, in sessions like that. So I guess that's part of the the character building of his. Um, his philosophy and mentality and it certainly did you know it, it laid the foundations for for the rest of my career I don't know that I'd still be here in the sport today if I still had to train in that way but um I mean the guy the guy's record speaks for itself and the athletes that he had were physiological specimens and they could they could handle that kind of workload and they got the results so yeah pretty impressive yeah, yeah awesome. of course. I think if you if you look at like you said the caliber of athletes that have come out of that system, there's no questioning, you know what's you know the the credibility of someone like him. him even though it can, can be tough, but I mean rowing as a sport, we've been chatting about it. It, it is it, it, by the nature of the sport, it is extremely it's extremely difficult. I mean how you how you saying earlier, I'd, I don't know how anyone would manage to to get all the training done if they were if they were existing by themselves and not in part of a team. For sure, yeah. So Emma, moving on after the the Beijing Olympics, all right? You might, obviously that was your your first Olympics under the belt. Uh, moving into two thousand and nine, what well, I mean straight off the bat, the second World Cup, you came away with a silver medal. It definitely seemed that there there was some sort of change of of a mindset and attitude because. You know that was. It seemed like the the bar had been lifted a bit. Uh, was there any? Was there what was what, what happened between the the break between the Olympics and then the international season in two thousand nine? That was there a bit of a shift in your in your mindset, or was there a change in the training? Um, I'm sure going to your first Olympics kind of changes the per- perspective a bit about how your training and racing works. 
Um, yeah, I, I, I think there was definitely a hunger for for more after Beijing. Um, and I, again, I was really disappointed by that result. And I, I felt like I, I had a better performance in me. Um, I think the thing that New Zealand does or has done in the past is we kind of get back into training quite quickly after uh, games and that whole um, four-year period is is a pretty intensive one, whereas some other nations, I think, take, take some more time after the games and then build back into it. So perhaps the ref- that, that was reflected in those early results that some of these legends that have been in the game for a long time took some time off, which allowed, you know, allowed someone like me to kind of improve and sneak in the door. And, and with that medal, I think I probably just gained some confidence that actually um, I could be in amongst the top few in the world in women's sculling. I was, I was, you know, another year or two older. I'd been in the program another year or two, two longer. It wasn't just fresh out of school. Um, so probably though that, you know, that really intensive period under Dick in the eight and um, for a period of time over summer was, was kind of paying off. So that, that potentially was the, the difference in that year. Um, and I think a lot of it just comes down to belief and um, determination and, and again, having those results at the World Cups that just made me realise that I could be there and I could, could hang in there amongst some of the top. Yeah, I mean, you really, I mean, the, the women's single, I mean, it, it's we can't really have a discussion about the women's single without talking about um, Ekaterina Carstens. I mean, what's it, I mean, have you have you had conversations with her before? Because she is such a legend and I really hope one day we can also have a chat with her on our podcast, but she yeah what 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 has it been like racing her over your career because she really is a huge legend in the sport not just in the women's single skulls yeah she certainly is and yeah she her her english isn't her first language so it's, it is sometimes a bit of a barrier to chat to her and i would love to sit down and have a proper conversation with her um because every time you know we we try and converse it's it's kind of the very basics but her her husband speaks very good english and um, we as scholars actually get to spend a lot of time together at, at races outside of the the world uh, World Cup circuit and and World Champs. So the times that I've spent the most times with her have been at the Armada Cups and um, Holland Beckers and places like that. So she is an absolute legend, um, and certainly again was inspiration for me at that young age. And and her, you know, her she was at the, the later stages of her career when I was starting. And so to think of what she'd achieved in all of those years prior is, is pretty mind-blowing um but i think she's she's a bit of a gentle giant really like she always walk around a regatta and will always say hello and smile and and be very friendly but you see her on the water and she's you know she's a possessed human and physiologically is an absolute weapon um so she for sure was the benchmark for me um in my early days uh and every time she came back i just you know i have a huge amount of respect for her competing right into her 40s um, and she was never too far off the pace which is phenomenal yeah I mean you you touched on there that there definitely seems to be some sort of like a single scholars club it almost seems like especially in the off season because there there does seem to be a lot of um, um, cooperation between the different countries uh, like you said at the Māori Cup and then also at um, at the head of the Charles you know at the of course the uh, the Gold Coast Regatta. So, t- chat to us a bit about that, and you know, has it always been like that? And what's what's it like being able to have uh, more 
I mean, obviously you compete against uh, when you're competing, it's it's cutthroat. But uh, chat to us a bit about when when the when when the pressure's not on and and you know having a bit more of a casual conversation with scholars from around the world. Yeah, that's I guess the beauty of being by yourself and having no mates is that actually you need to you need to make some <laughs> friends. And so so what you you look to the people that you're you're racing side by side with, and um, there are these awesome regattas that happen in our um, off season uh, where for whatever reason single scholars generally tend to gravitate and that's where I think you get to know people really well because the pressure's off um, you're obviously having a great time as rowers do in their off season um, and in the past few years uh, having these the eights formed at the head of the Charles um, where you've got eight you know the eight top female scholars you just get to know each other a little bit better, which means that when you come to the next World Cup, um, you know, you're always looking forward to catching up with those people. Um, and I think there's probably a, a certain element of um, respect amongst all of us as well, that you do have this kind of mutual respect and understanding for what they go through because because we do it um, all, all by ourselves as well. And also just um, kind of getting to know the different ways of doing things because yeah, rowing is in a way a very simple sport but it's amazing um, how many countries have different philosophies or different ways of training or um, technical models or whatever it may be so um, yeah it's it's certainly something pretty special amongst single scholars uh, and I was definitely introduced to that through Mahe um, Mahe and Olaf obviously are great mates and Mahe was the first one to kind of suggest that, that Nathan Cohen and I join him in, in Boston and, and then do some cycling in Europe and do the Armada Cup and the Silver Skiff and Again, it is a bit of a bug, really. When, when you do it once, you just want to keep going back. Yeah, I mean, the, there's there's definitely a circuit of of rowing events outside the the world rowing and the, and the Olympic uh, cycle that are, you know, obviously massive events around the world. Henley being one of them, ahead of the Charles. Of your experience with you know with these non uh, non traditional regattas, which for you is is the best experience you've had. Um, from somewhere like Henley or, or head of the Charles, and you know why? Why? Why does this? Why do these regattas stand out? Uh, I think they're all very different, and, and there's certain things that I love about each of them. Henley is something that every rower should experience in their career. Just purely the the size of it, the spectators, um, the one-on-one racing. You've got the wooden booms. It's just such a, uh, an amazing event, and so steeped in tradition that I think it sets it apart from from any others that I've I've competed at um, but equally the head of the Charles is an event that is just amazing and fascinating as well that you've got so many people coming to this regatta so many schools so many people of all ages that are racing over the same course one after another for the entire weekend uh, and then you've got the the challenges of the course navigating the course um, getting through the bridges so that's something quite special as well. Um, and also for me, one that I love, which I'm absolutely gutted it, it doesn't exist anymore, is the Armada Cup, um, the mass start of 200-odd scholars, um, men and women in the same lineup, and all starting off with one gun, basically. For me, that's, yeah, that's something quite unique and, again, something you just don't experience in rowing. Um, and there's been many times where I've followed an under-19 men's single down that course, and he's kind of <laughs> led me the way, and, and I've had a battle with, with him. Um, but, yeah, that's it's a shame that it's it's not around, and I'm hoping that um, 
someone's going to reignite that flame because it's a, an awesome regatta. Yeah, a big theme of our interviews is talking about the the innovation in the in the rowing scene, and I think one one of the biggest things that that becomes apparent to me when you look at these uh, regattas outside of the the official circuit is that you know how much innovation there is actually available to the sport of rowing and and secondly how popular um how popular these events are i mean like you can just look to henley that event is crazy like you said <laughs> racing down those those uh wooden barriers with people lining the the banks all the way from start to finish just goes to show that rowing can offer so i well i feel like it can offer so much more from you know spectator side um and what kind of like innovations would you like to see coming from uh, world rowing into the the official circuit yeah i think there's there is all sorts of things that you you can do and i think there's a balancing act between keeping the um the pure 2000 meter racing that that we all know and love about rowing um, and taking it into a shorter format or uh, a different stretch of water or a different format. And there's been a number of things that they've kind of tried over the years. Well, I was actually involved in the first of the city sprints that they did in St. Petersburg. Um, and I think that's a, an awesome concept uh, to bring, I guess, the general public to see rowing and to, to, to make it exciting. Um, and I think there's some amazing stretches of water around the world where, we could we could do something similar. Um, yeah, it's it's a tough one because I think you know having also worked at the the International Olympic Committee and and knowing the pressures that each sport is on to to stay relevant and to create something that is really exciting and and potentially a shorter format. Um, there is a lot of pressure there, and and for me as a rower who excels over two thousand meters and is an endurance um, athlete to then. You know, be told that actually maybe then the next Olympics going to be a 500 meter race would be um, you, you have quite a different athlete, I think. So, I guess it's managing that and balancing it out, but also still making the sport available and accessible to all sorts of different people, and that maybe through through kind of sprints or um, something like one on one racing. Um, but I think FISA does a great job too of, of kind of looking for those opportunities and. And maybe it's going to actually take, you know, event organisers that see an opportunity to to start staging some of these events because they'll see it as a way of making some some good money, and and that will be, you know, the next the the way that that our sport may change or yeah develop. It's it's going to be an interesting time. And LA, the LA Games, I think they're even the course at the moment is looking like a shorter course. So we shall see. Yeah, I think it's it's very difficult because I think a lot of the rowers know that we need to have some change and uh, and some adjustment. But we all train and love two thousand meters, so none of us really want to be uh, be the the people that uh, that take the knock and uh, do the change. So yeah. I think they are. I think if you ask Nathan Nathan Cohen and Joseph Sullivan, they'd probably be advocating for a five hundred meter race. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there'll be a, a, a few people that. That a shorter race will, will suit just fine. Um, but, yeah. go, but going back to the long races, so uh, that 2012 Olympic campaign, um, I mean, you, your results definitely took a step up and an and and awesome step in the right direction with lots of uh, podiums and, uh, and, and even a win at, uh, at the World Cup Series. But uh, 2010 and 2011 were your first podiums at the World Champs uh, with two third places. 
And I think that must have, have been a really cool sign that uh, that the work that you were doing was paying off. Yeah, definitely. Um, so that four-year block, I was I was officially being coached by by Dicker in t- in 2008. I was I had a different coach, um, so I kind of joined his his group and was in that group was the men's pair Mahe and a women's quad. Um, so four boats that were very different speeds, obviously, and uh, um, it was a barely grueling four years for me uh, mentally and physically. And I think I certainly made some gains, um, but there were some definite highs and lows in that that, that I reflect upon that um, and have learnt from. Um, and uh, yeah, again in those in those intermediary years between Beijing and um, London, I, I definitely progressed forward and felt like I was in a position to be challenging for a medal in London. Um, based on those performances and relatively consistent performances at the World Cups and things as well. Um, so yeah, London was, was definitely a disappointment again in terms of my result. Uh, but looking back also those, those years were certainly, um, of progression as well. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, that fourth place, uh, I'm sure Jake, uh, knows very well. He was fourth at, uh, at Rio as well. So, uh, it's, it's such a brutal, a wooden medal. it's such a brutal position, um, but still, as you say, it's still huge amounts of learning and still huge amounts of progress from, uh, from 2008. And like, maybe talk a bit about the, the actual Olympics, because I think they were very different, uh, between Beijing and, and London, uh, with such a huge focus on rowing at the, at the London Games. Definitely. The London Games were, um, were super unique from the, from the perspective of the number of people that were watching every single sport. And rowing is obviously a traditional, sport in in the uk so i remember first showing up at, at the course and had raced at dawny many times before but arriving for the for the olympics and seeing the size of the grandstands um was pretty amazing um and actually being there racing on the course with two sides of of complete grandstands the the sound was phenomenal and it was again an interesting games uh the the weather i think played a huge part um and a lot of results at that that Olympics, um, and so there was kind of a, a number of challenging elements in terms of the rowing side of the London Games. But the games in general were something out of this world. The organisation, um, yeah, it was it was certainly an organising committee that just hit the nail on the head. And as an athlete, it was pretty impressive to be part of that games. And yeah, I guess it made for some exciting racing. Um, dealing with different conditions and and we had all sorts of um, results again at, at those games that I wouldn't have necessarily picked. Um, and for New Zealand, it was a it was our best games ever in terms of gold medals won. So again, to be part of that that part of that team was was pretty amazing. But at the same time, uh, again, I left wanting more and and feeling like I had had not achieved what I was capable of. It's uh... It's really tough, and I mean, uh, and it's all about that perspective. And you know, uh, the fourth place uh, must have been really, really disappointing for you. Uh, I know I was sitting on the on the grandstands during uh, the London racing. I went to watch my brother race uh, after I hadn't qualified at uh, late qualification in Lucerne. So <laughs> it was a really tough games as well, and uh, probably worse on the on the grandstand, even as big as they were uh, <laughs> racing down the track. 
I think uh, still really exciting racing. And I mean, you still had really good uh, build-up. And what was the season like before the 2012 Games? I know you had come fifth and, and second at the at the World Cups. And what did you feel like going uh, into the Games? Yeah, that, that season, it was an up-and-down one for me. And, and even the, the previous two years, um, I'd experienced a little bit of fatigue, uh, especially 2010. Um, I actually left Henley in the middle of the week and came back to New Zealand because I was just um, exhausted. Uh, and I feel like in my London year too, there was a certain element of that. Um, just, I guess, trying to, part of part of Dick's program, um, I was kind of expected to, to take every single stroke that any of the other crews did as well. So, um, you know, a 30k row in the single takes another 20 minutes, half an hour longer than it would in a women's quad or men's pair. And I think that just, you know, it just wore me down eventually. And and there was, I think, the, the Lucerne World Cup before London. I remember racing there and thinking of all the training that I've done, I should definitely be in a position better than fifth. I just don't didn't feel, I felt like I was kind of, I guess, rowing in mud a bit and just left behind. And so I had to kind of really recalibrate and get, get going again. Um, and I had a much better result Uh before at the Lucerne World Cup before the Olympics um, and then came into London still very confident to, that, I, that I could win a medal um, I was racing Kim obviously who hadn't been part of the singles field for a few years um, and then yeah I guess if you'd speak to to Carsten as well about that games um, I think the single woman single skull was defined by the placings that everyone had in the semi-finals moving into the finals uh, and with hindsight um, I was actually winning the semi-final for the majority of the race and I guess there was a part of me that was reflecting in, on Beijing and thinking yes if, you know you've made the final this is a this is a great step and and you know save yourself. Even watching the the final the weather looks uh, really really uh, well, it's very clear across the course that uh, those uh, what stroke side lanes are definitely favoured yeah. uh, down the track. So, yeah, it just shows that those, yeah. uh, as you say, those those places from the semi final were were so crucial. Uh, yet everyone, like you, don't really know that going into going into that semi final, coming into the the finish line of the final. No, yeah, it was it was pretty clear and. It was probably just unfortunate that we were the last race of the regatta. I think they changed the schedule around that that games, and the wind just built and built and built, and so it basically meant that the final was, I think, in, in my opinion, was determined by the semi-final results. And and I think the person that that in in from that race actually performed really really well was Kim Crow. Um, she was in lane four, and she was very close to a silver medal in that race, um, and you know not far from from first as well. So. Yeah, I think it was. That's just sport, though, isn't it? That's you know, you've. Yeah. I learned a lot from that. I learned that you know, every single race has to be your absolute best, and and you know, I need to back myself to be able to recover and still perform again the next day because the difference between uh, a gold and a gold medal and no medal was probably the placing in the in the semi final, um, and that's been the case actually at a number of regattas since then. <laughs> I think Rotterdam this year was another example of making sure that you do well in the early rounds so that you you put yourself in the position and and I guess that's that means that you're the 
um, you know, you're the most deserving of that result because because those girls that put themselves in those positions came away with the, the medals. It, I mean, it it just raises a, an important uh, point on racing is that you know the 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 the, the A finals and the Olympic finals they're obviously the the end result of a set of progression, and I think just highlights the importance of really making sure that, I mean, especially in the single skull, that your progression, you really have the ability to pr- produce good rates, good races from the heats to the rep charges and so on because of the importance of lanes. And unfortunately, rowing is an outdoor sport. And, you know, the, no matter how the, you know, the, the organizing committee and the organizing staff can always be better at, you know, handling these situations. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's an outdoor sport. And sometimes, things aren't going to be completely fair. And, it, and like, the, the progression to me is, is so important, especially in the skull. Um, I can imagine from your experience, you know, racing, heat, quarterfinal, semifinal, this is something that other boat classes don't usually have to deal with, but as single scholars, you have to deal with it all the time. And, you know, sometimes you can race a quarterfinal and <laughs> it's going to be racing some really, really quick people. Chat us a bit about the, you know, racing the skull from that perspective and how how different it is doing so many races in the lead up to the final and, and what kind of element does that does that bring to your racing? Yeah, I think it's it certainly it separates the the best from kind of the next best and and, and saying that I, I say like every single race you absolutely have to nail. Um, and it can make the, all the difference what lane you end up in or um, how you race the earlier the earlier races so it's a massive part of it and it's something that I've certainly learnt as time's gone on and with experiences like London um, but also to be able to win every single race you have to put yourself in that you know you have to be in that that top echelon anyway because the singles so competitive and and um, yeah there's there's often times where you've you you know you're racing one of the best in a quarterfinal just because of the draw um, so. Yeah, again, I guess that's the beauty of the sport and the beauty of the single skull. Um, and it, is, it adds an element that others don't have. You know, the, the, our women's eight can go race two races in the Olympic Games where I'm guaranteed to be racing four. So um, it's, it's a comp- completely different beast altogether. But it does, it, it certainly, these experiences have, have highlighted to me um, throughout my career how important it is to put the your best foot forward in every single race and even in Rio there was you know a day a cancelled day of racing which meant that you raced day one day after the other and um you know we had some terrible conditions in Rio I remember yeah, him the, him coming third in, in the uh, and yeah. the heat because of the the rough which then put um some three or four very very talented girls against each other in a, in a quarterfinal so yeah, when you're the best in that field, then that's that's great, and you can progress. But if you're kind of on the on the cusp, and you end up in a race like that, then it can be really brutal. Yeah, then it's a that's almost where like the the luck element of of rowing has to come in. If you if you're the best, then you have to rely less on the on the luck. I mean, talking about Rio, that's exactly we were talking uh, we we're talking to uh, Robert Lucan from the Dutch Eight, and he was talking about uh, the weather in Rio, and. I, I was busy warming up for for our heat when uh, when the the women's single was racing down, and we really thought that the the regatta was going to get cancelled. And then we had to look across and be like, 
well, there's Emma and, uh, and her heat racing down the track, so they're not going to cancel this regatta and they're going <laughs> to they're gonna carry on racing. <laughs> we need to get on the line yeah. and make sure that we can, uh, can get down the track. Yeah, and I remember that race. Um, I put my hand up at the finish line and I won the race clearly and, and uh, had no issues at all. I mean, the rough suits, suits my style of rowing, but I just as I was racing down, I was just thinking back to London and the, I guess the injustices of it all and thought to myself, you know, these girls behind me aren't going to put their hands up and say anything, but this is ridiculous. And I know that we're racing because of the, you know, the constraints of the, we get a timetable and broadcasting and things like that, but that's not what the Olympics about are about. And, uh, I felt, I felt compelled to put my hand up and protest the conditions. And sure enough, um, Kim come, came down the course and ended up in third. And again, it you know, confirmed to me that, that it wasn't fair. Um, and I'm glad that the next couple of days, um, the, the organising committee kind of realised that, that this was an Olympic Games and people's <laughs> you know, livelihoods and careers were on the, on the line. That should have been a different story. Yeah, so um, I want to jump. You, you spoke about uh, a little bit in 2012 on like how hard you had trained and how uh, mentally and uh, and physically you were you were putting yourself under the whip and i mean i think in as all athletes it's it's so important to to manage the the mental aspect of of training and know where the limit is but also push the limit all the time and i think in the single skull it's it's even amplified because you don't have that uh, crew around you to to kind of temper it at, at some stages when you're going uh, too well or to pull you along when uh, when you need that that extra little push so talk us through the like maybe more from a training point of view but the the mental understanding of your own limits and 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 body and how they need to be so in tune to to be able to to produce the best training yeah I think that's something that again with experience and uh, different coaches and, and different training programs I've learnt more about my body and learnt more about its limits uh, and when I when I get the most out of it and when I don't uh, and I think that is something that you can probably only learn from doing um, but yeah the mental side is, is pretty important especially in the single uh, the monotony can sometimes um, get to you but at the same time I think any any rower must enjoy a certain amount of um, monotony and and routine in their life. Um, so yeah, I think that the mental side is something that I've probably worked more on later in my career. Um, and in the early days, I didn't really. Um, there was a number of sports psychologists that we had available to us that we uh, could access, but there was not one that I really clicked with. Um, and it wasn't probably until my return to rowing after my my break in Rio that I um, have found someone that kind of fits the mould uh, a little bit more and yeah it's certainly been something that I've been working a lot harder on and maybe uh, as my as I have other challenges as I get older it, it's become more important as well. Yeah I mean it's so so crucial that mental edge is is so important and to to understand where where it needs to to fit in and how much it can affect training and performance is is so important. I think it's only something uh, a lot of athletes are only really starting to learn now, or maybe it's just something that comes with uh, with that age and that uh, that wisdom of of experience. I think um, the, the the we want to move on to a, a really cracker year of yours. So 
yeah. that that fourth place that obviously was disappointing, but uh, still a huge curve in 2012, your second Olympics, and then you decide to to give it a give it a bash again for the 2016 Olympic cycle, and having a good 2013 back into into the beginning of the cycle, and then that 2014 year where you just seem to to get all the the puzzle pieces in right and uh just really really exciting exciting stuff and and first at uh, all three world cups and first at world champs uh what a year for you yeah it was a it was a great year um and i think it was probably off the back of um a change in uh, my team after london i i moved to a different coach and we had a different physiologist at the time Daniel Plews um, who was kind of changing the way I guess we thought about what how we did things um, I took some time off after London and, and went, went and did a bit of an internship and moved away from from Cambridge and that was at the time when I moved coaches and, and started working with him so I think it was actually reflection probably of the work that we'd done in 2013 um, and it was also off the back of my desire to again prove rowing New Zealand wrong. Funnily enough, um, in in the early um, part of 2014, I had a number of discussions with rowing New Zealand about um, needing a change and wanting to feel refreshed. And I and I actually wanted to to try for the double scale that year. Um, but Rowing's, uh, Rowing New Zealand had very clear kind of objectives for me and they had earmarked me as a, um, a medal in Rio. So I guess they sit down after one Olympics and then kind of decide how many medals they're, they're going to win at the next one and that's where their funding is based off. Um, and the high performance director at the time and selectors, um, Alan Cotter, had, had clearly earmarked me as a medal potential. So they wanted to see me in the single scale uh, and they... I was pretty frustrated by that because I wasn't necessarily committing to, to being in the double in, in Rio. I simply wanted to change and, and believe that to be the best in the single um, that this, this, that year, uh, I needed something different and new and, and um, then I'd be there in a better place. Uh, so I had this a little bit of a battle, you'd say, with, with the selectors early in the year. And at the same time, um, I'd heard about this master's course over in Europe. Um, and so... I kind of thought, well, if Rowan New Zealand aren't going to give me um, a chance to refresh here, then I'm going to take matters into my own hands and had applied for this course, um, not really thinking that I would, would get accepted into it um, and continued on in the single begrudgingly uh, and ended up racing the, the World Cup in Sydney um, and at the very same World Cup was interviewed for this Masters course. So... I kind of had a bit of an air of, um, you know, whatever will, will be, will be at that, that regatta and was accepted into the Masters course the day before the final in the single uh, and then just went out in the single and, and went for it and, and managed to row through Kim in the last 250 metres of that race and I guess took quite a, a bit of confidence from it um, and at the same time gave Rowing New Zealand notice that uh, actually, I'd be going away to to Europe after the World Champs to do my master's degree, and um, you can imagine that their response wasn't um, wasn't the best. And um, yeah, so that season then became about uh, proving to Rowan New Zealand that you know they'd made a um, pretty average decision, and and from that point they were not supporting me in going away um, to Europe. So 
I was trying to convince them that I was the best single scholar in the world and that they should be selecting me while I was doing my masters and then I could train and compete overseas um so it was a it was a bit of a strange season uh from that from that kind of I guess mental perspective but at the same time um I was kind of surrounded by some different thoughts and changes in my training program uh with Dan Dan's ideas and and Gary Hay and there was much more of a technical focus um from Gary and I think I, I started to row a lot lot better than I have technically in that year and then kind of mix things up with a little bit more um, cross training rather than being in the single morning and night on the water I did a few different things um, started to get into the gym a little bit more and, and have more of a strength focus and I think yeah the, the work in 2013 that we'd done in those areas really started to show on the water uh, as well, coupled with my um, <laughs> with my desire to, to really prove a point to our national federation. It must have been, I can't imagine that it must have been really a frustrating period, but uh, even even with all that being said, I mean, just going through and then getting back to the skull and picking up a clean sweep of gold medals at every World Cup and then winning your, your, your first World Championships in a gold medal position, that must have been a phenomenal feeling, even with obviously all the all the frustrations um, on the one side uh, it must have been yeah I mean also the at that stage there'd been incredible rivalry with um, with you and, and Kim Brennan in, in in the skull so it must have been that results crossing the finish line in the first place it must have been incredible yeah it was it was really cool and the the great thing about those those years um, after London was was that rivalry that Kim and I had Uh and some of the best racing in the single and most enjoyable is, you know, being in a drag race basically with with Kim. And there was often races where it was just the two of us um, battling it out. And 2014 was certainly my year. Um, and yeah, Kim, Kim, she's just she's a, a phenomenal athlete. And to to know that you've beaten, you know, one of the best in the world is probably even more satisfying than, um, you know, winning an event where there isn't someone with with Kim's caliber in it. So it was definitely, I have fond memories of that time. And, and I think that was because of that rivalry, it, it made that those couple of years even um, more special as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's certainly, uh, it must be brutal, but from, from the outside looking in the, the races, those are some really incredible races. And I think we've chatted to, to Ken Brennan on the show as well. I mean, and just chatting to, chatting to her, you, you get a real sense of the, you know, of the, the, I mean, it's brutal out there, but it's also, there's, there's uh, elements of beauty to having such close, close races like that. And even if it's uh, really visceral, um, and then, yeah. And, uh, after, after 2014, chat to us a bit about 2015 and, and doing your, your FIFA masters, it must've been quite a, a big change from, uh, the, the rowing environment. Yeah, it was really, really different. I'd come from school into the Row New Zealand program as an 18-year-old and hadn't left it, basically. Um, and so for me, it was a, a real change. It was a real challenge. Um, and I was adamant after my year in the single that I would train throughout and, again, prove that I could keep fit and I could study um, and do both and do both well. And so... Looking back, it was actually probably one of my proudest uh, parts of my career. Getting up at you know five thirty in the morning and and hopping on an erg in my 
apartment in Milan and, you know, smashing out 20 to, to 25K on the UG before I'd go to class uh, and then spending my lunchtime while my, my colleagues were all doing something enjoyable uh, in the gym and then, you know, being studying until kind of half past 11 at night and doing it all again. So it was a really in, intense time, um, but something I look back on with a lot of pride and was constantly feeding all of my training data back to Rowan New Zealand in the hope that by the time our selection trials came around in March, um, they might actually consider picking me to try and qualify the boat um, anyway. And I was set to, set to graduate, I think, in July of that year. And World Champs were a month or a month and a half afterwards. So I had dreams of meeting the team in Europe and, and you know, continuing the build-up and going to the qualification regatta. But that wasn't to be, unfortunately, um, and which left Fiona Burke. Um, in my single skull position uh, and unfortunately she just missed out on qualifying the boat and I remember riding my bike uh, in Switzerland where we the last kind of part of our, our course was and just listening to the race and and thinking well I've got a qualification regatta to do next year uh, which at the end of the day I had full confidence in my ability to win that regatta and be in um, Rio but I think uh, it, it certainly um had implications on my on my ability to to really perform at my best in Rio, um, and so with that, I guess there was a little bit of disappointment from the that in that this a lot of decisions were kind of made out of my control um, by Rowan New Zealand and didn't impact not only my result but for example our women's quad didn't qualify by one spot and arguably um, Fiona could have added something to that boat as well. So I think actually at the end of the day there was you know, six women potentially that were impacted by by our, our federation's decision to not support me and and my um, academic endeavours in that year. But I guess that's all uh, that's all history now. And yeah, what ensued in the year afterwards um, was was a lot of kind of determination again to to get the boat qualified and to get to Rio and um, yeah to to try and fulfil what I believe was was my um, potential. So, um, did you when you were uh, in Switzerland? Were you were you still rowing, or were you just on the ergo, uh, just physical uh, training, or, or were you managing to to get some time in the boat? Uh, so we went to three different places. We started in in uh, Leicester in England for three months, and then moved to Milan for three months, and then um, Switzerland. And so I take my boat and, and erg to each spot okay. uh, in. In, in Leicester, actually, the stretch of water was a, a kilometre long, so I didn't do a hell of a lot of rowing there. Um, and then in Milan, I was rowing um, the, the canals when they, when they normally row were actually, that particular time that I was there, were actually empty, so I had to go out to um, the 2K course out by the airport um, and train out there, which added to that, but I was on the water a couple of times a week in Milan. And then in Neuchâtel, uh, I was lucky enough to be based on Lake Neuchâtel, which isn't again the, the most ideal place for rowing but it allowed me to be on the water a lot more than um than i had uh, and then i was based after that um that master's period in, in zurich on lake greifensee which is an, a beautiful little lake in zurich um for three months or so before i came home yeah and um okay so you you so it wasn't completely um starting in the boat from uh, from scratch in in 2016 and i mean you talk about the the nerves for uh, late qualification i mean even 
being a, a world champion, I think it's still pretty um, nerve-wracking going into to Olympic uh, late qualification. It's uh, quite an unpleasant regatta with uh, a lot to lose and uh, and a lot to gain. And I think it's really, really huge amounts of pressure um, on those uh, on those few races. And but I mean, you did manage to to come off with the first there, and I mean that must have given you uh, some confidence for the the season coming forward. Yeah, that was a an interesting race actually, and I remember being quite comfortably in the lead, and then all of a sudden there was a boy in my lane that had floated from from the course, and I I'd literally put my blade onto this boy and almost um you know fell in pretty much, and I remember having a huge amount of uh, adrenaline got surged through my body and finishing the race again, you know, putting my hand up and saying to the, the um, umpires who had seen it all unfold that there was a boy in the middle of my lane and and I'd crossed the line first and had qualified, so there was a huge relief, but it kind of sunk in that, you know, that regatta is not a regatta you want to be at because something like that could be the end of the, the Olympic dream. Um, so, yeah, it was a very pressure cooker situation. Uh, I was very confident that I would qualify. There was actually four spots, I think, that went through from that um, that race. But, again, there was some pretty big names in that. I think there was uh, Carsten, was that 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 race yeah. was she um no, she was sanita and yeah sanita and uh fee uh from denmark so you know some pretty no, quality yeah. competitors um it's, so yeah uh not something i'd like to experience again <laughs> no and it's it's quite funny you're talking about that because you know lawrence and i have both been to the late qualifiers and i was also uh, I also went to the, the late qualifiers in 2016 and I was racing in a four and we managed to to win our event and get our spot at the Olympics. But it was it was quite funny because the the build up to, to that regatta, our coach um, had been involved in rowing for a number of years and obviously been to a few of these regattas. And the way he used to tell us is that you guys have got to make sure that you, you've got your wits about you because at this regatta, people will sell their mothers at the one kilometer line mm. to get their boats in front. A hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, and that's like the Olympics as well. It's a lot, a lot of the times in the semi-finals or earlier rounds, you have these performances of people that you just have, you know, never expected. But exactly as you say, this is a different level, and there's more on so so much more on the line. And when there is those kind of stakes, people are will, willing to go to some pretty dark places. No, of course, and it's it's all very much a part of building building the athlete and building that character. Um, and then obviously qualifying at the late qualification brought you to Rio, which we've already discussed. Um, but um, at Rio Olympics, it was very notable Olympics. But also for you, the, I mean, the, 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 the coming fourth there, again, must have been quite a, a brutal result. And that race was really, really tight. Um, it was quite, quite, the, quite the final to race. And just like the men's single skulls, the women's single skulls was... Um, one hell of a was one hell of an event, you know. Chat to us a bit about the uh, the 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 results and the the downtime after the Rio Olympics, and you know how um, how how was it after after that experience? Yeah, Rio again. Um, it was an Olympics that was, uh, of course, extremely de- devastating um, in terms of result, but actually one that I really enjoyed because of the you know the culture and and the kind of lax atmosphere that those games um 
kind of presented us. But in terms of the rowing side, uh, again, yeah, I mean, I, I had a great semi-final. I was pretty close to to Kim in that race, um, and I actually hadn't raced uh, either Jevy or or the Chinese Sculler earlier in that season because for whatever reason I, I didn't race the, the Lucerne regatta because I was qualifying the boat and then they didn't race the, the next World Cup so I didn't really have a gauge on where I was against those two scholars but I knew that I was you know at least pushing Kim um, and again believed that I could be, be an Olympic champion or at least an Olympic medalist um, and it was one of those races where I came out of the, the starting block and, and everyone took off around me and, and I just left too much work to be done in the latter part of the race. Um, I think potentially the the pressure of the qualification regatta and the way that that had impacted my season in terms of a peak may have um, had some kind of impact. Um, you know, I guess when you look back on those things and you try and figure out the reason why things didn't go to plan um there were a number of number of things that i um that i could point out and and which kind of made the res- result even harder to to cross the line and know that i hadn't um done everything possible or there'd been decisions made out of my control that had led to to that result so i guess as i crossed the line i just at that moment thought that's a fourth place to Olympic Games, you can't get much worse than that. <laughs> so um, it was time to, to hang up my oars. Um, I just did, couldn't really fathom another four years of, of grind um, for another similar result. Uh, and so decided that I would make the most of, of what I'd done in that year of the Masters and go and work it overseas and try and get a job in one of the international federations. Um which is what I ended up doing. I did an internship at the International Olympic Committee um, and pretty quickly, within kind of six months, I guess, um, after you've worn off all of the the freedom and, and ability to eat what you want, drink what you want and, and do what you hmm. want, um, there was a part of me that reflected on, on Rio and um, it wasn't until actually the Pyeongchang Games that I went in, the Winter Olympics that I w- worked on that I really decided that that I wasn't done uh, that if I was to come back that I would make sure that um, I'd, I'd done I could cross the finish line and, and know that I'd done absolutely everything and if, if that meant that I was in sixth place then I, I can be content with that um, or if I was in you know in first place that you know it was it would just be finishing my career where where I believed um, I'd done everything I possibly could so that was the motivation uh, and also in that, that that period of time off I guess I realized that um, I loved rowing I loved the the routine I loved being an athlete and pushing myself every day um, that I had the rest of my life to to sit behind a desk and and make other people's dreams come true I guess and that it's a bit of a privilege to be able to to be competing to be the best in the world at something and that's there's only a limited time in your life that you can you can do that so why would I not be um if I still had more to give and my body was still able and and I kind of am so pleased having come back and looking back at how my body has adapted and and getting back into the sport that I did do that because I realized how much desire I still have and passion for the sport and how much enjoyment I get from the day to day and and potentially that there may have been what was lacking in my um, headspace in those previous games just the the absolute appreciation for for being an elite athlete and and making the most of this time 
Yeah, I mean that's that's incredible, and I can I can definitely speak <clears throat> for most people in the rowing community saying that it was uh, it was absolutely incredible to see you you racing again at at the first World Cup. I mean, at the second World Cup in, in 2019, it was definitely you know felt like a, a you know a good good return. Um, and I see part of the I was you know doing in our research. I see part of the on the road back to to fitness. You decided to cycle from Switzerland to New Zealand. I saw the, saw I saw. Um, I imagine that must have been quite quite an in- interesting uh, journey to go on. <laughs> Chat to us a bit about that and and how you came up with that idea. Yeah, so that actually um, we called that that trip the long way home, and it was kind of inspired. Uh, there's two Kiwis that I was working with at the games that I became, at the IOC, sorry, that I became very good friends with Rebecca Waddell and Sarah Van Bellacom, uh, and they'd both been working at the IOC for a few years and kind of had decided that they wanted a little bit of a change and. We'd often go cycling together, and Bex was was um, a bit of an adventurer, and she kind of threw out the idea of cycling back to New Zealand um, from Switzerland. And I, at the time, was footloose and fancy free, and had no desire to be back in a boat. I hadn't touched an oar for probably a year and a half. I said to her, "Well, I'll come. That sounds like good fun." And Sarah said, "Well, I'll come." So um, we got quickly got planning and set a date. And uh, by that stage, I'd been over to Pyeongchang and decided that I was going to get it back in a rowing boat. Um, so my kind of uh, plan of going from Switzerland to New Zealand was obviously going to going to have to change. Um, and I committed to doing four months, I think, at that point. Um, so the long way home quickly became the short way home for me. Um, and then as I started, it became pretty clear that riding my bike for 100 a day um and and not in the same way that you would be training for um for rowing cycling it wasn't going to be the where i get me to where i needed to be in 2019 so i actually did six weeks of the trip i rode from switzerland to istanbul um which was still absolutely amazing and something that i would 100 percent do again um and bex the legend rode her bike all the way from switzerland to new zealand in under a year so um yeah it was just a, a kind of a time and place thing um, that then the, the goalpost changed as I had more of a desire to get back into rowing but at the same time it was a bit of a kickstarter to getting the body going again after not um, you know not being super fit for rowing um, for that, that year and a half or whatever that I took off before I came back to New Zealand. Sure, that uh, that's really awesome. I mean, I, I remember watching the the videos that you guys were posting up, and just really, really awesome uh, trip to to go on. Uh, how did the body cope? I mean, six weeks of uh, of riding that kind of distance is still uh, still a serious uh, undertaking. And how how did the the body cope? Um, and did it adjust quite quickly, or did it just get harder and harder as you went along? Um, it actually, it was amazing how it adjusted, but also when you think of a hundred kilometers over the space of, you know, the entire day and you're just, you're kind of cruising along at, I don't know, anywhere between 21 and 25, even less when you're going up hills, I guess 15 to 20 K an hour. Um, we spent kind of anywhere between five and eight hours cycling in the day and at a very kind of low intensity and it's quite a different experience to the, the kind of training that we we do in a boat or on the bike um, day to day. So the body definitely got used to sitting on the sitting on a bike seat and and just you know kind of grinding. 
Um, and it was just a very, very different experience and different intensity to anything. I, I kind of had to hold myself back. The girls would be pulling their hair out. We actually came to an agreement that we'd all um, would all meet up if we were if we were doing a I don't know fifty k. We'd all we'd have a coffee stop and then a lunch stop, and we'd just do it ourselves because. I was all about trying to get there as, from A to B as fast as possible and, and Bex and Sarah um, often just wanted to chill out a bit more and Bex actually adopted a, a no-push policy um, <laughs> because she she figured out pretty early on that if she pushed herself and tried to keep up that she wasn't going to make it all the way to New Zealand. So um, it, it obviously worked because she made it. <laughs> Flip, that is uh, really crazy. I mean, that's... Uh and all the way to New Zealand as well. Must have, must have been amazing seeing her uh, ride in at the, at the end. And then, I mean, getting back into 2019, so that's two years out the boat and uh, you really didn't uh, um, miss much because uh, you came back in and banged out two first places at the World Cups and a second place at World Champs. Uh, almost uh, your best season ever and it must have been really, really cool to have made that commitment back and then to get it so uh, so right. Yeah, it was um, it was a fascinating year because I didn't I really didn't expect to get the results that I did. Uh, you know, my, my goal was is Tokyo, still is. And um, when when I came back I uh, took took definitely a few months or so for the body to kind of get used to rowing again, uh, the hands to get used to it. I hadn't I think I'd done a Hollenbecker race and maybe an Amada Cup race, and and literally those were the two times that I'd been in a boat in that um, period from from Rio through until when I came back to the summer squad in New Zealand uh, in October of 2018. So I I'd, I'd really had um, under a year of proper rowing, uh, and it was amazing to see how my body adapted so quickly. Uh, I'd, I'd done an Ironman in. Um, in 2017 when I was when I was over working in Switzerland so I kept fit but I hadn't done any rowing at all so it was amazing to see how quickly it came back and you know it's just like riding a bike um but at the same time technically that that side of things took a little bit longer um and it still is is still definitely a work in progress and I'm finding more and more speed as I kind of figure out the technical side again um and then the fitness is there's obviously this you know underlying base that you you develop after all of those years and so it's kind of reigniting those and also i guess having um more of an understanding and and perhaps my body having been really well rested for those that year and a half that when you get back and get back into a training environment like we have here all of a sudden you make these these adaptations that potentially i wouldn't have made if um if i'd continued slogging it out for that that period so it's been an interesting experiment I guess and one that is continuing um, and it's also made me kind of think about and realize um, there's different ways of doing things and and um, yeah we're continuing to, to try different things yeah and I mean talking about your, your first race back that that race at the second world cup in Poland that was quite quite the gauntlet because you know there was a very tight race and I can imagine after being uh, not racing for for a couple of years, getting thrown back into <laughs> the rat race like that, that must have been incredible because um, for the listeners out there, the, the race at the Second World Cup in Poland was super close. And, uh, you know, I, I imagine you must have been really happy, not only obviously when coming away with the win at, at the World Cup, but winning a race that was that hotly contested. It's just 
adds another element to that confidence. Yeah, and the, and the build-up to that final was also something that I'd never really experienced. The In my heat, I think I was second in the heat, uh, and I was quite a – it was almost a bit of a shock to me. Um, I think I'd probably, again, been a little bit naive to think that I could just come back and be where I was before. Um, and then the semi-final, I think I was ended up second, but even third. Um, so it was kind of like I, I was just finding my feet a little bit, and international racing, again, is not the same as racing domestically. Uh, and each race I had, I, I built more confidence, and I was kind of remem- remembering how it all worked and, and how it all went down, and to the point where in the final I just threw caution to the wind and, and went for it um, and find, found myself in the lead and, and, again, just hung in there, hung in there, and then with 2.50 to go, shut my eyes and, and you know, put my head down and, and I managed to cross the line just in, in first place. Um, and I guess that probably reignited the confidence that um, that I was able to compete with these girls that I, you know, have raced forever. Um, and as I, you know, became more comfortable racing internationally, being back in the in the international scene, um, it just continued to improve. And until even the, you know, the world champs race um, for me, I was, I was really proud of the way that I attacked it. Um, and I think Sunita was always going to be the person to beat. And throughout the early rounds of that uh, that World Champs, that was really clear. Um, but it was also nice to kind of feel that it was probably going to be a two-horse race between the two of us as well. It was bringing back the memories of, of racing against Kim. Um, and so, you know, again, I just kind of thought, well, the way to win this is to absolutely go for it. And that's that's how I approached um, last year's race. Uh, and it didn't quite come off. <laughs> I was in a world of pain. But, um, you know, you've got to learn. You've got to sometimes you know, push the boat out yeah. to, see, uh, to see how it goes and to see where those limits are. Yeah, and then obviously, you know, qualifying for, for 2020 um, at the World Champs last year, it must have just really, um, in a way, kind of like validated that, that sense of, of fighting the fire, finding the passion, and then coming back to the sports. It must have been incredible uh, result, uh, more so from you know the value it of of your whole journey. It must have given you so much value just coming off that race, knowing that you got a spot at the Olympics, knowing that it, it means maybe a little bit more to to everyone else after you know the trials and tribulations of 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 previous years, and you know coming back after a few years out of sport, having a really good World Cup campaign, and then qualifying at the World Champs. Yeah, certainly, and and like you say that having been through the qualification process in, in Rio to now have a, so, a spot secured. And even looking back now, you know, the, the events of the, the last few months, um, if that had been in the year of Rio, I would have been in a very uncertain spot. Um, but it's really nice to know now that that, that spot is qualified. Um, if it, it's there, if, if I desire to, to pursue the single, um, but not only that, our team has qualified almost every spot except for the women's four. So, yeah, we're in a pretty pretty awesome position, I think. Um, and I guess is is you know, it's now about planning this next year and, and planning for um, an Olympics that is a year later. And, and again, with hindsight, um, I feel quite lucky that I've only been been back in the in the game for a year and a half and I haven't I haven't been slogging away um, for a five-year Olympic cycle rather than 
you know, for me now it's going to be three years. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a nice place to be. Um, and I think it's the, the best thing for this Olympic cycle for me to have had that time. And certainly, you know, younger athletes need that, that full four year block. But, um, and looking back, I think it's just, it's, it's kind of fallen into place a little bit now. And now we need to kind of think about how we're going to keep improving and being better and, um, making sure that next year, 2021 is a success. Sure, man, what a awesome and just crazy career of rowing uh, that you've had and so uh, awesome to, to hear all of this. And, and I think we the whole world is uh, waiting with bated breath to see how, uh, how Tokyo 2021 turns out. Um, so that brings us to the end of the, the rowing um, and your, your rowing part of the podcast. And we just uh, to finish off, we, we have a couple of quick fire questions that we ask all the guests that, uh, that come on the show. And you can answer them however which way you, you interpret them as they, as they come. And the first one is that if you could race any boat class at the games, uh, what would it be and why? Um, the single skull because I don't know anything else. <laughs> oh, I knew we were going to get something interesting there. I was like, it's either it's it's going to probably be the single, but it could be <laughs> it could be anything. Yeah, we 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 uh, we're not sure what we're going to get. <laughs> yeah, um, and the next question is: if you could choose any three people from any point in time and from anywhere in the world, doesn't even have to be from rowing. To row in a quad with, who would your three crewmates be? Oh, that is a tough question. I think I'm going to pick rowers because we all know how a quad feels when you're not rowing with rowers. Yeah, hard <laughs> work. I'm going to go Kim, and these are all going to be um, women single scholars. No, actually, I'm going to pick um, Kim, uh, Brennan. That is the legend. Um, Sunita, because together we always have a good laugh, and she's an absolute legend too. Myself, mm-hmm. and who's going to be my bow person? Ooh, tough one, tough one. One of the Ever Swindell twins, and it's going to be a coin to decide who. <laughs> okay, coin coin well, that, that leaves a it leaves a good substitute bench with one. Everswin Dalton to throw in if someone gets injured, but you didn't hold yeah, back yeah. on the caliber athletes there. Yeah. That's going to be a very cool, uh, cool quad uh, to, to have a paddle in. Um, the next question is what is your favorite rowing race uh, that you find yourself watching over and over again? Uh, it doesn't have to be one of yours. Um, do you know who I, uh, I watch often is um, Catherine, Stomperovsky for the 2004 single scale race. Um, I watch her and the way that she moves a boat and I just, yeah, it just looks completely effortless. Um, so she's someone that in my career, I've watched that race probably more times than any other race I've watched. Oh, really cool. I think that's a race that I might not have watched actually. I'm going to have to go back and, yeah, and dig it up. She absolutely dominated it against, absolute quality uh, you had Nakova and Carsten and second and third and um Nat Koba was fourth in that race so some pretty amazing scholars that's yeah, really cool definitely one to to go back and watch 
I like that question because um, because it always gives us new races to to go and watch, and you know it's so hard to to find these like uh, polar races, and it's so cool to to find like hear from someone. Oh, they they love this race from uh, the '90s somewhere, or or, or the sculling race, uh, and it's just yeah, really cool to to go and watch them. So the ne- the next question is is quite the is quite the hot seat question, and we've kind of spoken a bit about uh, what it's going to be about. And I know you've had some experience in the administration side of rowing. The next question is: If you were in charge of wool rowing, what would you change? Ooh, <laughs> I think it's a hard one because I know that it's not always necessarily world rowing's decision to, um, you know, when it when it comes as we've talked a lot about in this podcast down to fairness. Um, I think that would be on the the top of my list is to making sure that um, venues and courses and um, things like this are are well vetoed based on um, the fairness of a course. Um, but again, you know, a lot of the time we don't have the luxury of choosing where these things are going to be. So perhaps it's something to do with uh, at you know a threshold or of um, fairness across lanes. But again, as you say, it's an outdoor sport, so that's a tough one. Um, it would be nice to see some effort though get put into to trying to to make it uh, um, make it fairer across the board and especially on some of these courses that are pretty wild and, and outrageously um, biased towards some lanes. Um, the next question though, is the one question that every single rower, especially school kids, always ask is what is your 2K uh, <laughs> best on the ergo? I could make it up, couldn't I? You, you could make it up. We, <laughs> but I we, <laughs> we're just going on faith, um, yeah. <laughs> so my best uh, I actually did this, this year, uh, relatively recently, um, 6.29 flat. Nice. That's crazy fast. Yeah, that that must be that must be quite quite insane, especially you know on your comeback year, because often um, you, I guess you wouldn't find that uh, p- p- people's two K PBs would come after a period of you know uh, time off. But you know that must have been you, you must have been quite surprised in a way of pulling a six twenty nine um, in uh, last year. Or this yeah, year. I think. I think I'm always surprising myself with the 2K. I think I, like you say, I expect there comes a point where, you you know, you reach a limit. Um, but I've been lucky that throughout my career, there's probably been a handful of times that I haven't achieved a, a PB on the 2K. So I kind of joke with my team that, that so long as I keep getting PBs, I'll, I'll keep rowing until, until that time comes. That's the time that signals my retirement. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, some real speed though. And flip, we get some some really crazy numbers from uh, Australia, and New Zealand. You guys uh, definitely have yeah, some uh, some knowledge on how to pull on the ergo. So the last question um, is: If you could choose a different sport to go to the Olympics in, what would it be and why? Um, I would say golf, purely because that would mean that I'd get to play on the international golf circuit for the rest of my life. Because there's really no no age limit to that sport, is there? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I wouldn't take golf as 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 your answer. I must I know, say, I don't right. think, and 
anyone has. I don't think anyone has chosen golf as a as an option yet. No, it's showing have. my age. I'm now thinking of how do I prolong my <laughs> career, and I think maybe a foray into golf could give me that. But I think it's too late, guys. Because we did have uh, Eric Murray chose golf as well. Uh, that'd be oh, right. Classic. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, it would Nasty. be. I think that is a good one to get into, kind of the opposite of rowing. Yeah. yeah. In some ways. Um, well, that brings us to to the end of our our show, and yeah, just a huge thanks for for giving us a big chunk of your time and and having such a cool chat with us. I know some of the the stuff is not easy to to remember and go back on, but uh, it really is awesome to to get such wisdom and and knowledge from someone that has such cool racing and uh and rowing results no, it's been really interesting trying to remember it all yeah it's taken me back and yeah well hopefully we get to to have some racing at some point uh, maybe towards the end of the year or beginning of next year and yeah it's gonna be cool to to see you out there and action on the water yeah cool thanks guys good luck with all your training endeavors and stuff too Oh, thanks very much. All right, hey. thanks a lot, Emma. Have, have, uh, have a great day. Have Catch you day. later. Cool. So that's a wrap for our Emma Twig episode, and yo, what a roller coaster episode that was. I'm sure uh, there was so much to take away from from that episode, and I'm sure all of you guys, uh, if you're in lockdown or or if you're somewhere around, then uh, and you're struggling, just uh, hope that this uh, this episode helps out a little bit and just uh, gets you through the tough corona times that we're in at the moment and otherwise maybe you're listening to this in the far future where everything is uh, back to normal and just enjoying it for for what it is um jake what did you take away from that episode yeah i think um you know emma's been on an incredible journey and um she 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 really had such insightful moments especially coming back after you know the 2016 race in rio and i just it's it's quite you know it's quite interesting to, to listen to her talk about um you know the struggles she's had, and I think it's it's really it's it gives you a really good lesson in in the journey we all on, and that we can we can kind of take that across. Yeah, definitely, and yeah, it's really really um, cool to just have uh, another really awesome episode in the bank of the row show. So yeah, just uh, remember, guys, uh, if you want to support us, uh, you go to SoundCloud, follow the link, and otherwise, just tell your friends about us and and keep helping the show show grow. Oh, and also a shout out to World Rowing for um, giving us their, their race commentary, allowing us to use their race commentary for the beginning of the show. Uh, I always think it starts the, the show off with uh, such a bang and, uh, and really, really cool. So, yeah, that's about it. Until next time, we've got some cool episodes coming up in the future recorded in the bank. So I'm sure you guys will, will be happy with uh, what's coming next. Enjoy your days. Ciao.